we're going to be looking at uh, some of the Psalms uh, this quarter in this class, obviously. That's the point. Uh, but uh, as, we're, as we're doing that, uh, let's, start, let's start a little bit. I don't have a game per se, but uh, get your mind thinking a little bit. Which of these is a result, uh, these phrases, these are some common idioms that we use, which one of these is a result of grave problems that were in London during the, uh, during the plague time? Saved by the bell? Maybe. I thought that was just like a popular 80s TV show. 90s, I guess. The, the dead ringer has to do with ringing? Okay. Actually, all three do. Uh, suppose, now, there's, there's always, whenever you get into backstories and etymology of words and phrases, there's always going to be some, some different arguments. Like dead ringer, some say it was de- dealing with horse insurance scandals where your horse that was really good and really productive, you know, eventually becomes an old mare. So you get a new one in, you kill that one, and you, you bring in a healthy one, and they called it a dead ringer because it looked just like the other one. But uh, a lot of it traces back to during the plague, London was running out of areas to bury bodies. And so what they would do is they were digging up bodies and placing the, the bones into bone graveyards so that they would have, they would have room uh, to deal with it. Well, when they started doing that, they began to notice that about one in every 25 coffins had scratch marks and claw marks on the inside of the coffin. And so people started to panic, thinking, wait, we're, we're going to be, we're burying people alive. I don't want that. So they started to come up with different ideas. One of the, one of the things that they did was they would put bells outside of the grave. They would attach it to the person's wrist. So if by chance the person was alive, you would hear the bell ringing. Well, in order to have somebody do that, you had to have somebody work at nighttime. So they would work what was called the graveyard shift. And if the bell would start going off, they were known as a dead ringer. So all of these different phrases supposedly not, whether or not anybody ever came back, there's some people say, yes, there were people who were exhumed, there were people who weren't, but I, I don't know. Like, I'll give you another one. Uh, which of these is a result of the vain pursuits in the 1500s? I gave you a little clue over there with beeswax. Mind your own beeswax, crack a smile, losing face. Let me give you a little bit of story. Maybe that'll help let you decide. Uh, in the 1500s, the ladies didn't have the exact same cosmetic uh, concealers and uh, facial, facial implements, makeups, uh, to be able to cover up whether it was like smallpox after the scarring would occur from smallpox or acne, different things like that. So they would use different items. One of those items was beeswax. So they would use beeswax on their face in order to, as a, almost like a concealer, in order to, to cover up some of the blemishes. So what came out of that was actually, again, all three. Uh, the, the ladies would, if you would, you would put it on, and then Sandy, you're close enough. So as, as a lady would start talking to a lady, another one, they would start looking at, at the face, start looking around a little bit, and you would you start to feel a little uncomfortable, and, and you would look and say, mind your own beeswax. You know, and the idea that you have your own, you have your, I have mine, we're all concealing, we're all trying to hide the blemishes, get over it, mind your own beeswax. Well, with, with the beeswax also came some of the problems when it was cooler out, the beeswax would actually be a little bit firmer and tougher, so the ladies would not smile as much, because if you would smile too much, you would crack your smile. So you, don't, you didn't want to smile, don't crack a smile. You, would, you wouldn't do that because you, you would crack the smile. On the flip side, during the hot summer months, or if you got too close to the fire, your face is going to start to melt, so you would lose face. 
So you didn't, you didn't want to lose face. So that all these little stories come out from some of the words. And it, it's sort of, it's fun. I enjoy that. I enjoy looking back and saying, okay, how do we get some of these phrases? And we could go through raining cats and dogs. And uh, we were talking, ring around the rosy. That's a little morbid one if you ever get into the, dealing with the plague and all those different things. So you, could, you can enjoy that backstory. Well, backstory is a popular thing. And in the Psalms here, some of the Psalms that we're going to be looking at we deal with backstory. Now, in literature, we don't just call it backstory. We often call it context. Uh, there, are, there are notes. Did everybody get notes if you didn't? We all good? Okay. Um, literature deals with what we call context. What, what is happening? Well, the problem with the Psalms is this. They're poetry. They don't really give you a backstory most of the time. So you could, you could surmise, and a number of people have done that through the years and through the ages, surmising and saying, well, this one might be related to David at this point, or this one might be related to uh, Israel doing this. But there are moments where, where it helps, because some of the information is given in the psalm titles. As we look at the psalm titles, we look closely to them, there is information that, that's giving in them. Here's, here's what they'll mark out, and we'll talk about that in just a moment here, what they are. They, they sometimes, they'll mark out an individual or a group. So you can look, uh, if you're in Psalm 59 there, uh, if you want to go there, that'd be great. That's where we're going to end up eventually. Let's go to Psalm 59 today. And how I'm going to do this is uh, we're going we're gonna to actually take the Psalms not in their uh, numerical order in the book of Psalms. We're actually going to try and look at most of the Psalms in the chronological life uh, order of David's life. So we're going to start with one of David's earliest psalms, Psalm 59, even though it's a 59th psalm in the book of Psalms. If you notice, you notice there at the top, it says, uh, you'll probably, right before verse 1, it should say Psalm 59, and then in these little, really, really minuscule writings, it'll say to the chief musician, Atlas sheath miktam of David, and when Saul sent, uh, and they watched the house to kill him. So it's going to mark out that there's an individual here, that there's a group maybe to the musician or that is a miktam or a song or a, a prayer of David. There's uh, sometimes they give musical or liturgical information. It'll say to be played on strings or to be as a prayer, a song of ascent. It gives you some information that will tell you, okay, was this a musical aspect? Was this to be supposed to be used in their liturgy when they're at the temple, when they're coming to the temple and they're ascending and the different songs of, psalms of ascent as they're moving toward the stairs up the temple, different things like that. They give a genre or, or a style saying, hey, this is a praise psalm or this is a lament psalm. Uh, it'll, it'll give you a little indication. Now, if you're like me, I tend to skip footnotes or because I don't understand half of the words in here, uh, you know, what's a mictum or, or what's, a, you know, Atlas sheath, or you just say, I don't get it. You know, we'll leave that to some nerd in a seminary somewhere, and we'll just, we'll skip over it, and we'll, we'll go forward. But they do, they do give us some information. They also give you that background or historical information. And so we're going to take the, the 12, 13 different Psalms, depending on how many we get in in the, in the quarter here. We're going to look at the ones, there's 13 total that give a historical background uh, to, to the Psalm definitively saying, hey, this is, this is what the psalmist, this is what was noted, was the result, this is why this psalm is being written. So we get, we get a little bit of that backstory here. So here in Psalm 59.1, we, we get that, we get that uh, psalm title that's telling us what the background, what the history is. Now what's weird about this is our Psalm 59.1 is different. If you, were, if you had your Hebrew Bible out and you looked at Psalm 59.1, it's going to be different than our Psalm 59.1. And in the Hebrew Bible, the psalm title 
is actually verse 1. So if you decide to, to, you know, take on Hebrew and battle it, and you're going to learn that, more power to you, have fun. It's great, it's wonderful, and it's also wonderful to be done with it. But uh, it's, it's, it's good. But you look at it and say, okay, verse 1 is actually the psalm title. So where it talks about a mictum of David, uh, or a psalm of David. It's, it, that's the Hebrew verse 1, whereas in our English Bible, verse 2 is actually verse 1, I don't, if that makes sense. So when we look at Psalm 59.1, deliver me, that's actually in the Hebrew Bible, verse 2. Now please, this is not, this is not an issue of inspiration at all. Whenever you go through your Bible, the, the verses, the chapters are not inspired. And what I mean by that is the numbers aren't inspired. They're simply, they're simply given to us as a mode of reference, a means of reference to be able to get through our Bible uh, quickly. So when David wrote out, he didn't write out verse 1, verse 2. That, didn't, that did not occur. That came later on uh, as, a, as an issue. So it's not an issue of inspiration like, oh, we changed it in the English Bible from the Hebrew Bible. It's just a, just a, a difference there. So let's take that historical context. There in Psalm 59.1, it says, right at the end, it says, when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. Let's go back to 1 Samuel. We're going to start in 1 Samuel right around 16, 17. And we're going we're gonna to plow through a bunch of chapters. We're not going to look in depth at the historical aspect of David's life, but we're going to set ourselves a framework so that then we can go back to Psalm 59 and say, wow, what was, what was coming out of David's life here? What, what was happening uh, to him? So if, you, if you'd like to, let's go back to Psalm 15, actually, is where we're going to start just a quick, uh, quick or First Samuel, excuse me, First Samuel. And we're going to start down in verse 15. We're going to look at what were David's actions or what happened to David or on behalf of David, and then what was Saul's response to that? Because that, that whole dynamic is going to lead up to what we just read in Psalm 59, where Saul says, go kill him. Surround his house, and I want you, I want you to kill him. So all of this is it's a quick synopsis of the, the interaction uh, between Saul and David. We know that in Psalm 15, verses 13, uh, verse 13 through 15, um, it says here that, uh, sorry, it is, it is chapter 16. It's not verse 15, it's chapter 15. Sorry, I have the wrong chapter there. Chapter 16, verse 13. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The anointing of David occurs here. David is going to be filled with the spirit. Pastor was just dealing with some of this recently. An Old Testament filling of the spirit versus New Testament filling of the spirit. But David is now filled with the spirit. And look at the next verse, verse 14. Uh, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants even noted in verse 15 that this evil spirit from God is, is troubling him. So there's a, there's a dynamic that changes here where Saul, uh, David is filled with the spirit. The spirit departs from Saul. Now that's a, it's a huge issue in the life of the king here because now there is a definite change in what God is designing. The king who the people elected and God empowered is no longer going to be king. We know that it's going to be ripped away from Saul and David is going to be anointed as king. You, you fast forward now to the next chapter here, Psalm 17, or 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to keep doing that. 1 Samuel 17 through chapter 18, verse 4, we get that popular story of David versus Goliath. And what's interesting is how Saul responds. And we remember, I think it's verse 25, where he says, hey, I'll, whoever, um, yeah, verse 25 says, 
that whoever kills this, the king will enrich him and give him riches and will make, give him his daughter to be, to be married and make him uh, father's house free in Israel, which will be interesting coming up in a, in a few chapters here uh, to remember that Saul even makes that promise. But what does Saul do? By the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18, Saul is actually going to enlist David, that he brings him in and David becomes this individual who's going to not just play the harp anymore, David's going to be the guy who's leading the armies. David's going to be the one that Saul is sending out. And he's going out and he's coming back. And we all know that eventually what happens where David comes back after one of the victories and the ladies are saying what? Yeah. Saul's killed thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And that's going to build up this ire in Saul. And so this, this, this play between him looking at what is happening with David and what is happening in his life starts to, to go. But by the end of chapter 17, Saul's just like, I'm going to use this guy. But as we get to 18, verse 5 through 9, we're going to start seeing some changes here. Verse 5, it says, And David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all people and in the sight of Saul's servants. And then verse 6, there it says that there's a slaughter of the Philistines. So David is going to go out, and wherever he goes, Saul, wherever Saul sends him out, David goes. He's going to do battle, and he's going to continually behave wisely. He's going to be used greatly of the Lord, and he's going to continually have victory after victory against these Philistines. And, and so it goes on, it plays, and uh, there's a slaughter of the Philistines, verse 6. And as they come back, the Saul's thousands, David's tens of thousands. Verse 8, Saul was, Saul's response is he's very wroth. He is angry. It says that he is displeased, verse 8, that he's very wroth or angered. He's displeased. He's not happy about this. And notice at the end of verse 8, he says, what more can this guy have but the kingdom? I mean, he's got everything. People love him. He's having all these victories. The only thing left is for him to take my kingdom. And Saul becomes, from that moment on, it says, that he becomes very suspicious. He eyed David, verse 9, from that day forward. So now you have this guy who loved him, enlisted him, he's great, you beat Goliath, wonderful, to I'll send you out, to now there's anger, there's displeasure, to the point where, verses 10 and 11, we know the story, David, Saul is being troubled, David comes in, he plays for Saul, he's playing the harp, and as he's playing, trying to help, trying to soothe, trying to comfort, Saul picks up the spear, tries to kill David. Not once, but twice this happens. Now, whether it's right away, back to back, or whether David comes back again, does the same thing, and he's helping, that, that occurs. You move forward a little bit into Psalm, uh, verse 3, Samuel. Wow. Samuel, 1835. David still, uh, verse 13. He starts, uh, David's afraid, of, Saul was afraid of David, verse 12, because the Lord was with him. And he departed from Saul. So Saul, Saul's catching on to this, that David is being used by God. He's noticing that. So what does Saul do? He says, therefore, Saul removes David from him. He gets him out. He gets him away from the city. He says, basically, go, go to battle, and I'm going to put you at the forefront. It's almost like what David eventually does with Uriah. Put him at the forefront. Hopefully, we'll get him killed. So Saul is sending David out, sending David out, Trying to, trying to get rid of him because he feared him, because he despised him, as the verses say, uh, even in verse 15. He, David behaved himself very wisely, and Saul, again, afraid, terrorized of, of this guy David. So then you, you move forward into to 17, verse 17. 
and says, now Saul's going to try something different. I, I can't get this guy killed. Everything he does, he's prospering. The Lord is with him. Let's, let's try something else. Let's, let's, maybe let's get him married. Now, in the, in the context of where it's at and how it falls, it's very interesting that they plug it in. Remember, this was, this was promised to David. The man who killed Goliath was promised, 1725, was promised the, the hand of the king's daughter. So Saul is gonna, he's gonna use his daughters to get to David. The first one, he's gonna, he's gonna offer Merib, the oldest daughter, to, to David. But then there comes this, the, right before they're about to get married, You'll, you'll notice down uh, verse 19. It says, And Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, but she, rather she was given to Adriel, the Meholah, the word is right there, Meholithite, okay, to wife. There was, there was a, a skirmish on the southern, southeastern, uh, southeastern, yeah, area of Jerusalem. Th- these individuals were coming. Basically, Merib becomes that peace treaty. She becomes that, hey, if I, give, if I give my daughter there, maybe they won't attack me. So Saul is going to, sorry, David, nope, not going to get her. I need a peace treaty over here. You go over there. So he uses his daughter. But, you know, Michael likes you or Michelle, however you want to say her name. Uh, she likes you, and you seem to like her. So why don't, why don't, you, marry, why don't you marry David? Why don't you, get, why don't you guys get together? But what's interesting is Saul's motivation to, uh, to, give, to give Michael to David. Uh, down, in, down in verse uh, 21. And Saul says, I will give him her that she may be a snare to him and that at the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, hey, why don't you, take, why don't you be my son-in-law? Take this. So what is that inferring about Michael? Is it that Saul knows that she's not a godly woman? Is it that Saul knows she's into idolatry, which we will see coming up here a little bit later? Is it that... Michael's really in Saul's back pocket and says, Dad, I, I love you more than the, this guy, but you know, I can be, we're not real sure which direction it is, but Saul's goal is not like, hey, you guys are going to be a great couple, and I hope blessings upon you, and I hope that it all goes well. No, here, take my daughter so she can trap you up, and maybe, maybe it's going back to him. She can be your Delilah, you know, and snare you with the, with the other, the evil, the evil ones, the Philistines. Not real sure, but we know that that's Saul's motivation. Saul is an individual who's all about using people. He's using people to get his agenda accomplished rather than following what God wants him to do and, and leading in that direction. So an interesting dynamic when you're reading through, uh, he says, you can have my daughter, but in order to, let me give you the dowry, because David's like, I, I'm not worthy to be a king. I don't have a king's dowry to offer. I'm not going to give it. So Saul says, well, you can, you can do it, but I want you to go kill 200 Philistines I want you to, to bring me back their foreskins, and then you can take my son or my daughter to be your wife. Graphic, I don't get it all. I mean, I get it, but I don't understand why you go that route. But at the same time, that's what occurs, thinking, really, he's going to get 200, but David slays, or he asks for 100. David slays 200, and they, they go forward, and Saul recognizes again, even more that David has God on his side, and he is beginning to, to flee. And uh, it says, verse 28, uh, yeah, 28, 29. Saul, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, his daughter, loved him. So now he's, my plan is backfiring. It's not going to work. Saul has become more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. 
So now it's from here on out. It's you are public enemy number one. We are going to take you out. We are going to go after you. It's almost like you get that picture when the Pharisees finally turn and they're like, okay, Jesus is public enemy number one. We are going to do everything we can from this moment forward to take out Jesus. This is where Saul is finally like, we're, we're going to figure it out. We're, we're going to take him down and we're going to walk right into uh, the rest of this chapter here. Obviously, What's going to be the natural ramification of David just randomly walking in and slaying 200 Philistines and basically massacring their, uh, their bodies? The Philistines are going to come to war. And it's not just war against Israel. They are going to war against David. They want to get this individual, which is important for us to remember in the context when we get to Psalm 59. David does not just have one mortal enemy. David has two. Because he has been the face of the army of Israel, they want to take out the five-star general. They don't want to just leave him. They want David. They want to take him out. They want to come. So there, there's this battle, and now you have a change that's going to occur. Go through to chapter 19, verse 1. Um, it says, And Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Apparently he still hasn't figured out enough yet that Jonathan really is friends with David and is loyal to David and understands that David, who David is and how God is with David and he's going to side with godliness. But Paul, Saul starts to persuade, tell the other people, hey, here's our plan. We've got to kill David. Doesn't understand it all, so even Jonathan gets Saul out in the field and says, Dad, what, what's, what are you thinking here? What are we, we're going to kill him. We want to take him out. It uh, doesn't give all the battle plans per se, but you get that idea that Saul is now not just content with his own crusade being his. He's going to rally troops because he doesn't like the way something is done or he doesn't like what a person is doing or he doesn't like this individual or what has happened with, or is happening with this individual. He starts to go around and, and gather people to say, we need to, we need to band together and we need to kill, kill this guy. We need to, almost that mob mentality that let's just keep going rather than rationally thinking and, and taking a moment to step back. So we end up in 19.2. Jonathan is going to intercede on behalf of David. He's going to go. He's going to find out what is happening with David. And Saul, he, he goes to Saul and he says, Dad, wh- why are you going to do this to him? He has done nothing against you. He has lived righteously. He has been, uh, uh, verse 4, he says, why, why would you uh, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you? Everything you've asked David to do, he's done. He's come in to minister to you when you're grieving, when you're hurting. He has looked, even though you are his, his enemy, he has sought to do kind things to you. So David, playing through that, there is a benefit here where Saul is going to temporarily, temporarily rescind this order. But we get, to, we get down to verse 8. Uh, and the Philistines, they're the, here they come again. He gets sent out again by Saul, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them, not just slew them, but he slew them in a great slaughter. There is, this, is a, this is a massacre of the Philistines of, of great proportion, and Saul, now filled with the evil spirit, verse 8, he looks and he's going to throw a javelin at David again. He's going to seek to kill him. And he's, he, he, seeks, he seeks to, his, one of Zach's favorite words is in verse 10, smite. He likes the word smite. He's like, 
is it smite, smitten, smote? He always does that. It's like, I'm like, yes, it'll work any of those ways, depending on where you're at. Uh, but he, he seeks to pin David to the wall with a javelin again. And as he tries to kill him again, and what's interesting to me is the number of times, I don't, I don't know if the Philistines are thick-headed or if they're that just obstinate and saying, we've got this. But you'd think after how many times of David's massacring you, massacring, you know, just he doesn't lose against you guys. Maybe it's just time to say, okay, we're good. We'll, we'll go somewhere else. Let's take on another. Let's expand to a different area. But they don't get it. And the same thing's with Saul. It's like you continually know that God is with this individual. You're saying it over and over that you see that God, he has the spirit of God with him. And yet he still is going to try and kill him. And that's where we get to the, the direct context of Psalm 59 is 1 Samuel 19, 11, where it says that Saul has finally said, I am going to kill David. So Saul, verse 11, sends messengers unto the house of David to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, he, she realizes that. So she is going to persuade David to run. And she's going to help him. Now, they are all around him. Think about the situation. He is, Saul has sent his men and his messengers to encircle, to siege David's house. And they are around. They are messengers. They are telling him, we're coming for you. You're going to be done. You're dead. Saul has given us the execution order. You have till morning. You can get your affairs in order, but you are dead in the morning. And Michael says, David, you need to run. So she lowers him in a basket out, out the window. He's able to, to escape, to get away. And, and notice that it is her, which, which this is just, she's, very, she's a politician in some ways. But Michael, Michael is the one, verse 11, Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be slain. So Michael let David down through the window. She's the one who's initiating this. But when you get to the, the end of the passage there, verse uh, around verse 17. Saul's looking saying, why have you deceived me like this, Michael? Why did you do all these things? Why did you put the idol in the bed? Why did you lie to my men? And she looks and says, well, he said unto me, David said, let me go. Why should I kill you? Or in other words, hey, if you don't, you don't let me go, I'm gonna do harm to you. Why should they be able to kill me? You let me go. So she's not like, hey, this was my idea, dad. She's just simply like, he, he made me do it. He, he, he forced me to do it. I, I had to. Which, to me, as I was thinking, I'm like, why would you do that? But it makes sense to me if I'm looking politically or, you know, just expediently for my life. If I'm here saying, Saul, if you catch him and kill him, I didn't do anything. So I can go right back into your house and everything's great. If eventually Saul dies, David never has to find out that I told this to Saul. I can just say, hey, David, I was your hero. I never, I never, let, I never let Saul into to knowing that I, I let you down. So she's able to play both sides of the coin here a little bit. There's a whole dynamic in this area where when Saul places this execution order, uh, she takes a, a uh, statue or literally an idol and she places it into the bed to, to pretend, you know, the pillows underneath the covers with the wig. She does it with a big, a big idol statue that's in her house, which we can get into it, but we won't for sake of time. What is she doing in the house, her house, in David's house, with an idol, not, it's not just a decorative statue. The word that's used there deals with when, uh, when Samuel comes to Saul after Saul uh, doesn't slay Agag and he's making sacrifice and he says, 
hey, it would be better for you to have been obedient than to make sacrifice. And this is like the sin of witchcraft and idolatry. The word for idolatry there is the same word that's used here. This is not just a cute little cherub that you put in your bathroom somewhere and say, oh, how wonderful, let's stick it in and that can be David for the night. This was a full-size replica, whatever, of a different God. So here you have the wife of David, a man after God's own heart, a man who's trying to live righteously, has the spirit of God in him, and yet his wife, whether he knows about I would assume it's that big, he knows about it. It just plays into a whole dynamic that you've got to wrestle through, and I, I don't have an answer completely for it. I'm like, Sharon, what are you doing with an idol to Buddha in her house? You know, it's like, it's there. I mean, you might think it looks a little bit like me or used to look like me, but come on, you can't have this here. You, you, gotta, you gotta wonder. So, so there's that whole dynamic that plays out there. But as we just quickly look, let's grab some truths from David's life and uh, some, some sadness from Saul's life and use that and then spur into Psalm 59. Being filled with the Spirit and following God does not spare one from evil individuals. I think we're, we're all pretty well aware of that. Uh, it's, it's going to come. Even David living right and doing and anointed by God and filled with the Spirit, it happens. Following God's leaders, even in difficult times, is wise and righteous. I think that's important for us to remember. David does not, and throughout his life, and we'll see it in this, these studies, he's in the cave of Adullam, has the opportunity to slay Saul, and yet he just cuts the robe off. He doesn't go after him. He's not going to lift his hand. He's going to let God deal with it and let God be in control rather than him manipulating. He's going to continually follow even when it gets hard, even when it gets difficult. He's willing to minister to those who hurt you. I'm sorry, I'm not as godly as David, but you throw a javelin at me once, I'm not coming back to your house, and I'm not gonna play any instrument for you, and it's gonna be a long time before I sit you know, within proximity of javelin range to you. And yet David looks and says, oh, well, I need to minister to him, this is God's man, he needs comfort, he, I am able to do that, let me do it. God bless you, David. You, that's something I have to work on, is those who offend me or those who frustrate me or irritate me, me going out of my way to be a blessing to them. That's hard. Surround yourself with righteous friends who will have your back. That's the story of David and Jonathan. Someone who will go to bat for you even when it's difficult, they're gonna look and say, no, he's a good man, she's, she's a godly lady and the things you're saying about that's not true. They'll, they'll have your back in those difficult times. This one, to me, this is, this is challenging to me because I have a very godly spouse, to look and say, just because she's godly, I can't just say that I am too. Just because David is a man after God's own heart, anointed by God, filled with his spirit, it doesn't mean his wife was following suit completely. That, that is a responsibility that we each individually have to make sure that we are godly, that we are following after God and we are doing. From Saul's life, here's, here's a couple different things. Jealousy and bitterness will consume you. We can go into whole studies on bitterness and how it is just that, that canker, that worm that deeps root into, roots deep into your body and it will just devour you and consume all dynamics of your life. It'll, it'll mess with your thoughts, it'll mess with your rationale, you won't be thinking straight. You need to deal with jealousy, need to deal with bitterness as it comes into our life. Don't be enraged when God uses others instead of you. That is a, that is a for, for pastors, that's a, that's a difficult one at times, honestly. 
Because they look and go, why'd they say something to Tony? I, I, did, I did stuff. Why didn't they say anything to me? I mean, oh, I know why. Because he's Tony. You know, I could, I could very easily get, get that mindset in my heart, in my mind. But I don't think it's just pastors. You're at work and you get overpassed or God, you know, they bless somebody else with the promotion that you really believe you deserve. Do you rejoice with them or do you get bitter and get frustrated and get irritated by it? Willingly using people can lead to heartache. And, and this, is, this is dealing with motivation, with agenda-driven, Saul and his daughters. You need to be careful that when we're, we want to use people, obviously. We want, we're going to talk in the morning message about, hey, God wants to use you. We want to serve together. We want to minister together. But do you understand what I mean by using people to, to drive your own motivation, to step on them, to, to climb your way up? That's what, that's what Saul does, to make things life easy for you, but you don't care about what happens to those individuals. When bitterness uh, and enraged, and rage, okay, or when you're bitter, and there, it is, it is right. When bitter and enraged, be careful not to drag others on your crusade. That one we struggle with. You get, you get, you're, you're upset. So you're going to go find the pockets of people in church who think like you. And we're going to band together. And we're going to be the tip of the spear. And we're going we're to show everybody what we need. We're going we're gonna to drive forward. Rather than looking and saying, wait, let's take a step back. Why am I angry? Why am I bitter right now? What's happening in my life? Let's look. Let's say, am I acting like Saul right now? Or am I acting like David? So all of this is, is occurring. And that's where Psalm 59, that's what David finds himself in. And he looks and now we go, over, we go back over there to Psalm 59, so I can say Psalm and it won't be Samuel and I'll get, I'll get the words right. Psalm 59, uh, it's broken into a couple parts. There's the, the say laws in there, the, the think on this or the reflect. Some believe that he writes the first, the first four verses or so, five verses, while he's in the room talking with Michael and he's contemplating through the night, what do I do? The next part while he's running, maybe he takes a break and reflects. And then the last part when all of this is said and done, it could be any, it could be he just sits down and pens it all before he leaves. It could be that he doesn't pen any in his house. But whatever it is, David is writing this psalm based on that context we just, we just talked about. All of those things, and now they're coming. And look what he says. He says, deliver me from my enemies. The, the, the ones, God, who are right outside my house right now. Oh, my God. Defend me from those that are rising up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from these bloody men, these murderous men who are coming out. They're, they're going to kill me. He says, for lo, they are lying in wait for my soul. The mighty men, the warriors, the fierce people are gathered against me. And, and look what he's, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. Even Jonathan testified to that. Remember, he says, Saul, Dad, he's not done anything against you. And he says, God, you know that this is not me. They run and they're preparing themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold, thou therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any of the wicked transgressors, Selah. So we get this, this lament psalm, a little bit of imprecatory toward his enemies. Let's, let's walk through it a little bit. David obviously has this need for deliverance. He's looking in these first four verses and saying, God, I need you to deliver me. From who? Saul, his men. But also remember, there's the Philistines there, and there's going to be a, a dynamic where 
David is not just talking specifically. Notice in verse, um, verse number five, he says, awake to visit all the heathen. The word heathen there, the goyim, it's, it's a word that is not used, that, that David does not use for the Jewish people. That is the Gentiles. That is those Philistines. They are the, they are the goyim. They are the, the heathen outside. So he's looking and saying, deliver me from these guys. And even if I make it past this first line of, you know, people who want to kill me, I know if I get out into the woods even further, there's this whole group of people called the Philistines. They want me dead as well because of all these things that have happened. So David has this need. Though David asserts his righteousness, this does imply, I believe truly, that there are times when calamity or chaos is our fault. He's looking and saying, God, you know, this one is not on me. I, I didn't bring this one about. This happened because of me following Saul. This happened because of me doing what is righteous. This happened because this man is deranged. He's a lunatic. He's not thinking rational, and he's coming against me. But there are times in our lives when the, the things that, that come about are a result of, of those people. Now, the question I had asked myself was this. Do I tend to be a person from whom people need delivered? David's saying, deliver me from these wicked people. Now, we instantly think, oh, well, we're not that individual. But look at some of the descriptions of these people. They're, they're called mockers, slanderers. They, they use their speech. Down in verse 12, it says, For the sin of their mouth and their words of the lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for cursing and lying which they speak. The, the, these are individuals who are running around, they're, they're spreading false lies, they're gossiping, they're slandering, they're, they're evildoers, they're, they're looking and saying, uh, this is, the evilness of Saul is actually good and the goodness of David is evil. Do we, do we find ourselves being individuals who call evil good and good evil? Am I somebody who's going around and persuading others? Am I proud? Am I arrogant? Am I a boaster? Am I cursing? And people just, they're, they're like, I need, I need away from them. Do I tend to be that type of person? Do I tend to be and have the heart like David. David is going to repeatedly request deliverance from the only one who can provide that. Now we know in our minds, ultimate deliverance comes from God. We understand that. The, I look around the room and theology in here, you're all very confident, understanding that God is the ultimate deliverer. But when we find ourselves in the midst, in the throes of darkness, in the throes of people coming against us, in the the, the moments when people at work are saying things against us or word gets out in the community and it's affecting our business or when, when something is said at church and it starts to ripple through and, you're, and, and you don't know where, where else to go or what to do. Do we truly go to the only one who can provide? He realizes that it's not his complete responsibility. David doesn't look and say, God, I got this. I know you're in charge and I know you got it, but I've got my rational thought here. I've got my plan in action. It's not against planning. It's we, we should be planning. It's not looking and saying, hey, I, you know, I'll just sort of let, let what happens. It's not a fatalism that just whatever happens, happens. But rather, he does look and he understands, hey, my responsibility is to ask, to trust, to look at, I'm in a situation, God, where I really cannot do anything else. My back is against the wall and I have nowhere else to turn. Deliver me. Defend me. Save me. Lord, I need you. That's, that's where he's at. Now, it's interesting because the words are in a, an imperative. He, he's looking and saying, deliver me. It's not saying, uh, it, it's in a command form. But it's important for us to remember when, when you're looking at commands in the scripture, to understand whenever you're doing your Bible study anywhere, 
if it is a superior to a subordinate, it is a command. So if God says, be holy, then that is a command to me. That is a direct command. So superior to subordinate. But if you go the opposite, where it's a subordinate commanding a superior, David is not looking in the midst of this saying, you deliver me right now, it is your responsibility, I expect you to do it. That's not the attitude. It becomes a request. So whenever you're looking through scripture and you see that and you're like, wait, why is this peon commanding him? It's, it's the way that you, they would say it as a request unto him. So, so what does David request? He requests, verse one, deliver. Uh, he says, defend me. Verse two, deliver and save me. He says that uh, later on, he says, consume them, take care of them, verse 13. Uh, he, he looks and says, give me strength. Uh, he says, you're going you're gonna to take care of me. Basically, he's looking, he's asking for that idea of deliverance. Now, David's knowledge here of God is going to bolster him. It's very easy for me to say it, but what really helps me is when I understand who God is. When I really get a picture of the God I serve. Now, can I fully get that? No, we understand that. The mysteries of the Lord, they belong unto him. I'm never going to 100% completely fully understand and comprehend who God is. But having those glimmers of the greatness of our God, it helps. Look, look, at, look at what he, he says. He says, you're a personal God. How does he know? He says, deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. He doesn't say, at this point, he's not saying the God of Israel. He's not saying the Jewish God. He's not, he's not just saying Jehovah. He's getting very personally saying, my God. And David, you'll notice as we go through some of the Psalms, he gets that way with God. He's very personal with God. But he also recognizes that he's a powerful God. Look at the, the names of God in the passages. Down uh, verse, uh, verse 5, he says, Oh, therefore, O Lord God, Jehovah, the God of hosts, he's going to talk, verse, four, or verse 3 talks about Jehovah, the, the self-sustaining one, the, the, the God. Verse 5, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, the one who is strengthened, the one who is able to send in and, and take care of it. He looks and he says, not only the, the Lord of hosts, but the God of Israel. He says, you, the one who's in charge of our nation, the one who is really has set us apart, the covenant-keeping God of our nation, you're the one I'm calling on. You're the one I'm asking for. And he, he talks about the greatness of God. He talks about verse 11. He calls him, O Lord, our shield. He calls him his defender. At the, at the end, he talks about uh, verse 16. He says, you've been my defense. You're my refuge. You're, you're my defense again. Verse 17, you're my mercy. You're the God of mercy. You're the loving kindness, the long-suffering God. Put those terms, you're my defense. You're my refuge. You're my shield. What does David need right now? All those people around him. They're all, com they're all coming to do him physical harm. He needs a defender. He needs a shield. He needs a protector. He needs the God of angel armies. He needs the all-powerful one, the self-sustaining one. And that's who he calls upon. His understanding of God gets him through a dark, dark time. He even calls him the God who laughs. I love, I love this verse, uh, verse, verse number uh, eight. But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Not talking about laughing at their sins, but literally the idea of no matter what the greatest plan that these Philistines set up, no matter what the greatest strategy that Saul says, the wickedness, God, those who are against you, ultimately, I understand, it may not be right now, it may not be in the near future, but I understand ultimately, the best of their plans pales in comparison to how amazing and powerful and wonderful and great you are. You are God. 
You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And so he's the, he's the God who laughs. And David's, David's patience here, it's driven by God's power. He's able to wait. He knows. He understands. He says, because of your strength, will I wait? Will I trust? Will I rest in you? He, doesn't, he, does, he takes a step back. He's able to relax for a moment and look and say, it's because you're on the throne. Because you're God. You're not just, you're not the statue my wife keeps in the, in the, in the living room. You're the, you're the real God. You are Jehovah. You are the one who's going to protect me. So David's desire for God's exaltation then derives his request. He's not just content with getting through and looking and saying, oh, I made it. Whew, it's all good. But he wants to give praise. He wants other people to hear, to know, to recognize that, that God is the one who delivers. That God is the one who, when, I was, when, when you were facing a difficult time and you got through it and, and God did some amazing things, it's not just enough to, to keep it bottled up. He says, I want others to, to be well aware. You see, in verse 5, it says, uh, he says, Thou therefore, God, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen, not just, not just a couple. He says, I, worldwide, I want your justice, your holiness to go out. Verse number 11, he says, Slay them not, lest uh, my people forget. Scatter them by the power and bring them down, O Lord, of, uh, o Lord our shield. He looks, in, and then uh, verse 13, well, we can keep reading there. Uh, For the sins of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and the cursing and the lying. Consume them in wrath. Now, do you notice how we go from slay them to consume them, or slay them not, verse 11, to consume them in wrath, and you're wondering, wait, is, he, is David contradicting himself? Is he looking and saying, hey, uh, don't do this, don't, you know, what's, what's in your mind, David? But I think you have to remember as well, there's two different individuals, two different enemies that David's facing. To, to, to his brothers in Israel, he wants them to learn. He says, don't slay them, lest my people, catch that, my people forget. Scatter them by thy power. You can scatter them, disperse them, bring them down, O Lord, our shield. He, he identifies with these individuals. But then you get to, to verse uh, 13, he says, consume them that they may not be and let them know that God rules in Jacob or in Israel unto the ends of the earth. So he's not talking about the Jewish people here now. He's talking about the heathen who are setting themselves up and, and going against God's people. He's saying, these Philistines who keep coming against us, God, slay them. Take them out and let the people of the world know that the God of Israel, he's in charge. But to my friends who are here in Israel, and yes, they're doing wickedness against me, and Saul wants to kill me, bring those prideful, arrogant individuals down low. Deal with them. David's desire was that the God of Israel would be seen as the only true God, the only deliverer worldwide. David desired that, the God rule, uh, that God rules and not mankind. He desires that God's people learn from their sins and the punishment. He wants them to be made low. He wants people to notice that, they, that they'll learn so that they do not uh, forget. Uh, verse 11, slay them not lest my people forget. In other words, he wants people to learn from other people's punishments. I always said as the oldest, you know, Vicky's here, so she learned, you know, being the youngest in my family, they learned what not to do because the punishment that I received is the oldest. 
You know, as, and they, they'll all argue that I never got punished because I was dad's favorite. But the older kids, you know, always argue they got punished more and the younger ones, not as much. Well, part of it is because the younger ones learned from the punishments of the, older, of the older individuals. It's like, wait, if I do that, I don't like the outcome. I don't want that wrath of dad. So they learn, and that's what David is saying. Please, uh, deal with that. What's interesting in verses 6 and 7 and 14 and 15, uh, David, David deals with a, a pretty, used some pretty strong language here, calling people dogs. I mean, I'm not saying he's cursing, not, not in, not, but he gets pretty, he looks, does, does anyone here want to be called a dog? No, we don't. But he uses, he, he talks about these individuals who are coming, he uses this word picture, and he says, they return at evening, they, they make noise like a dog, and go round about the cities, they're yelping, they're barking, they're, they're, they're like the pack, as they howl, more are coming to the pack. You can see this idea of persuading, and, and Saul getting his army together to, to go against David. And they're, they're running around, and they're looking uh, like a dog about the city. They belch out with their mouths. The, the grossness is, is just spewing forth. Their lips are like swords, and people are hearing, and, and he's looking and saying, I hear it, and, and I'm, not the, I'm not the cause of this, and yet they're coming against me. He understands it in deliverance. Look how he ends about these dogs down later on in, the, in 14 and 15. He says, okay, in an evening, let them return. He, it's no longer worried about it. He's almost to the point where I'm so confident in God that he's going to take care of this, that he is on the throne, that he will punish the wicked, that he will deal with it. He's like, let them come. I know it's coming. It's just, it's not a woe is me, just beat me up. But he's, he's at this point now where he's looking and saying, all right, let, let them come. Let them make noise like a dog. Let them go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and growl or grudge if they're not satisfied. It's interesting in verse 15, you go from the beginning where they're like, they're running around, they're snarling, they're, the packs are coming together and everything seems to be going. So David's like, you know what? You're going to scrounge around. You're not going to find anything. You're going to be dissatisfied. There's not going to be this satisfaction to the point that as these dogs, you're going to be growling. You're going to want more. You're going to want more. And you're not going to find satisfaction because only true satisfaction is going to come through being right, being right with God. So David's courage in this situation, his confidence through a difficult time. How do you do it? How do you, I mean, I, I, just even the practical thing. My wife is stronger than, than many people think. But am I going to step in a basket and let her lower me down uh, with a rope off the second floor of, you know, climb? What gives them the confidence that God, in the superhuman, she must, she was probably, Michael was probably just ripped to lower David down to, to be able to, what, what gives him the courage to be able to just do that simple task to be lowered down in a basket with a rope? What gives him the courage to know that these individuals are out there ready to slay me? What gives him the courage, the, the confidence to know that the Philistines are out and camped about me? He looks and he, the, what gives him that courage to be able to go forward in life, even when everything seems to be parked against him, is his belief in God. His understanding of the deliverance and the multiple times he's already been delivered by God. But look what he says at the end of the psalm, the, 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 beauty, the beautiful song of praise that David is going to give. He says, everything's all against me, but I will sing of thy power. I will sing aloud of thy mercy when? In the morning. 
what in context, remember 1911, 1 Samuel 1911, what is happening in the morning? David is going to be put to death by Saul. That is when the execution is to occur. Saul says, in the morning, you kill him. So in the morning, they go in. Michael says he's not here. Guess what? By the time they figure it all out, David's far away. He's hiding, and he's singing praise to God and saying, you have delivered me. Your mercy is great. You have got me through it again. I don't know how, but you are the God. You have been my defense. You have been my refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I cling. For God is my defense, and God is my mercy. He ends with the merciness of God, the, the, the long-suffering. He understands he's not perfect. David's not claiming to be perfect. He's just trying to follow God. And in the difficulties of life and the hardships we face, no matter what they are, job situations are, are pressing in on you. People, people, relationships, friends that have been friends for so long have now turned against. Individuals that you thought were, were, were loving have now left you. you. You find yourself in situations where home is not, not as pretty as it once was, and you're, what do we do? You turn to God for deliverance. That is what David did in the midst of his throes. I believe that if we do the same thing, we find ourselves reaffirming, reaffirming who our God is. Not just trying to figure it out ourselves, but looking and saying, okay, this is God. And I can praise him in the morning. I can praise him in the evening. Because ultimately, no matter what is going to happen in my life, God is still on the throne. And I'm so thankful that we can worship him. And we can learn about him. And we're going to do that here. We're going to change gears. Why don't we do that? Let's head into morning worship and we'll look to praise this God who's still on the throne.